And today's episode, we wanted to focus on a really persistent and widespread misconception. And that is to be eligible for disability benefits, uh, a veteran must necessarily be physically injured in combat. Now, is that accurate? That is not accurate. The VA provides benefits for people who have a disability, physical or mental, which is related to their service as a veteran. And it does not need to be related to combat. So can you talk a little bit about how the VA defines what is related to service? And sure. particularly, what could be related to service that happens outside of combat? Oh yes, there are so many things. Here's how it works. If you are serving in the military and you develop an injury or illness or something occurs that later leads to a disabling injury or illness, then you are potentially eligible for VA disability benefits. Welcome to the Victory Over VA podcast. A podcast about empowering veterans to overcome denied disability claims. Each week, we deliver critical insights to help you understand the disability process, veterans' benefits, and how to take control of your legal rights. Now here's your host, Tony Francis Jackson. Welcome to Victory Over VA, your guide to unlocking your VA disability benefits. So who are we and why are we here? Well, I'm Francis Jackson from Jackson and McNichol, and this is Christian Terrison, an attorney at Jackson and McNichol. And we are here because we practice veterans' disability law. We spend our time helping veterans to get the disability benefits they've been denied by the VA. And so what's this all about? Well, each week we do this podcast and we talk about a particular issue or problem that veterans face when trying to get VA disability benefits. So who's this for? Well, it's for veterans, of course, but it's also for wives of veterans, children of veterans, friends of veterans. It's for everybody who is concerned for the national veterans community we are here to try to help those folks to move through the VA disability process from a denied claim to a granted claim with monetary benefits. That's why we're here. All right. Well, and on today's episode, we wanted to focus on a really persistent and widespread misconception, and that is to be eligible for disability benefits, uh, a veteran must necessarily be physically injured in combat. Now, is that accurate? That is not accurate. The VA provides benefits for people who have a disability, physical or mental, which is related to their service as a veteran. And it does not need to be related to combat. So can you talk a little bit about how the VA defines 
what is related to service and sure. particularly you know what could be related to service that happens outside of combat oh yes there are so many things here's how it works if you are serving in the military and you develop an injury or illness or something occurs that later leads to a disabling injury or illness then you are potentially eligible for VA disability benefits. I say potentially because there are some rules. For example, you generally have to be in active duty status at the time of the event that is related to your disability. So if, for example, you are AWOL for an extended period, that may bar you from disability benefits. But it's not required that you actually be at a military post at the time of the event. You could be on leave and uh, be involved in a car accident or motorcycle accident. You could be at your home away from the base and be injured or develop an illness. As long as you are actually on active duty, those events are still going to be a valid basis for a claim of compensation because they're tied to a period of active duty military service. I keep stressing active duty because there are rules that make it more difficult for folks in the reserves or the National Guard to get disability benefits. The folks in the Guard or the reserves tend to have cases where they've been injured while on inactive duty or active duty only for training purposes, typically a, uh, a two-week period of training in the summer, for example, or a uh, weekend training. And it's much harder for them to show that the problem is related to their service because they don't get some of the special protective rules that folks on active duty do. But the, the point that we're trying to focus on here is that it's much broader than being wounded in combat, much, much broader. Okay, so is there any difference in how a veteran who has an illness or injury that was incurred during active duty but not in combat, how they would apply for their benefits? No, there is not any difference. The process used to be simpler. Essentially, you could just write to the VA and say you wanted to get benefits for a particular problem. Now the VA insists that you use their particular form so that they can computer scan it to make it easier for them to manage the claims. But as long as you use their form, whether you print it off and fill it out and mail it to the VA or take it to the VA or you do it online and put it into their system, as long as you use that form to start the claim, then you can apply, and it doesn't matter whether it's a wound you incurred in combat, an injury you incurred in a Jeep accident, an injury you incurred in an off-duty motorcycle accident, a series of events that led to later mental illness. Any of those can be the basis for a valid claim for VA compensation benefits. You provided a number of examples there that 
really, you know, drive home the broad scope of what can be service-connected and eligible for benefits in terms of, you know, conditions and disabilities. What are some of the conditions or disabilities that veterans tend to overlook when thinking of what might be eligible for benefits? Well, a lot of older veterans from the Vietnam era who were exposed to Agent Orange are potentially eligible for service connection based on what's called a presumption for a lot of conditions that include things that people tend not to think of as service-connected disabilities. Diabetes, for example, more recently hypertension. There can be other things like hearing loss that folks don't always associate directly with their military service. You know, if they hurt their back in the service, there tends to be a recognition that, oh, that goes back to when I was in the service. But diabetes that comes up 30 years later, people may not make the connection that, oh, well, that's actually because I was in Vietnam or I was on a ship off the Vietnam coast and I was exposed to Agent Orange and I developed diabetes as a result. And there are other conditions as well. I mean, there's too big a list to talk about all of them, but we had an interesting case where we represent a pair of twins. One was assigned to Vietnam, one was not. And the one who was assigned to Vietnam and was exposed to Agent Orange developed a neurological condition that his brother didn't develop. And it, the condition's not on the list of presumptive conditions. But his doctor explained that she believed it was related to his exposure to Agent Orange because he had an identical twin, also in the service, who didn't develop this condition. And a number of other people who had served in Vietnam had developed this condition. Now, that's not to say that's absolute 100% proof that the exposure to Agent Orange in Vietnam caused this condition. But one of the things that people often overlook about uh, veterans' benefits is that unlike a civil court where you have to prove that it's more likely than not that something happened, in the veterans' benefits system, you only have to prove that it's as likely as not. And the doctor was able to say that it seemed to her that it was as likely as not that this condition was related to his exposure to Agent Orange in Vietnam since we know, A, that uh, a number of veterans in, who were served in Vietnam and were exposed to Agent Orange have developed this condition, and B, that he has an identical twin who did not go to Vietnam and did not develop the condition. And the VA ultimately accepted her opinion and is paying him benefits. Mm. And so, and that standard of proof, as likely as not, that really comes down to just a 50-50. So if, if you have a doctor who, you know, maybe isn't the most supportive of your claim, but says, well, I really couldn't say, could be, but it could not be, that 50-50 is, <laughs> is enough? Yeah, the, the VA would like the doctor to say it a little more plainly than that, but as uh, one judge on the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims said, it's like baseball, the tie goes to the runner. So if there are competing bodies of evidence, not service-connected, 
and it comes out to a tie, the veteran wins and gets the benefits. Gotcha. And I know that you know when somebody is injured in combat, there's all sorts of documentation, medical treatment, even commendations, things like that. How important is the documentation and evidence when a veteran is submitting a claim for a non-combat injury? It's very important. And one of the things that makes it particularly important for non-combat injuries is that there is a special provision in the law that allows for the VA to essentially give the veteran the benefit of the doubt in situations arising from combat. There's a special provision in the law that recognizes that in the heat of combat, there may be things that really don't uh, get recorded because nobody's sitting around writing things down. They're busy fighting. So those folks get kind of a, an extra uh, little legal benefit, if you will. But in a non-combat situation, the records become very important. And the best result, of course, is that there is a written record in the service records. One of the things that becomes, I'm not sure the best adjective to use, but one of the things that becomes important is that you get all the records because the uh, VA typically only gets the veterans' service records from the particular branch of service where he or she served. But in addition to that, in uh, St. Louis primarily and some other repositories around the country, there are personnel records for the veteran. The VA doesn't typically get those records, but what we have found is that it's very common for the personnel records to have details that establish a veteran's claim that are not in the ordinary service records. And one of the things that we've found is that the service records do not ordinarily contain Army or Air Force or whatever service branch hospital records. So if a person is in the service and is hospitalized, those records are kept separate uh, from the ordinary service records. So it becomes important in every case to make sure that we track down all the records from the different sources. And sometimes it's necessary to get additional records. There is a process called the Freedom of Information Act, which allows a person to request information from the government uh, about pretty much anything. But it uh, is particularly helpful uh, for getting records where the service record doesn't reflect the problem. Just as an example, we had a fellow whose claim was uh, based on PTSD, and it was based on having seen a fellow service person, I've forgotten now whether it was seriously injured or killed, in a grenade accident. Now, obviously, the injury to this other person would not be in our service person's records. You know, there's no reason it would be there. But we were able to make a request for records under the Freedom of Information Act for people injured at this particular place, this particular span of time, and demonstrate that, in fact, 
there was a, another service member who, as I say, I forget now whether it was injured or killed, at that place, at that time, as our service person had described, and apparently it was quite horrendous, and our veteran just never got over it. He uh, has PTSD to this day, but he also now has veterans benefits. Hmm. You had mentioned earlier that for combat-related injuries, there's a bit of a legal boost because, you know, what happens in the heat of battle and nobody's there with a, a pen and pad making sure it's all written down. Right. But when it comes to the appeals process, do the veterans who are making claims for non-combat-related illnesses or injuries have the same appellate rights as those who are injured in combat? Yes. They don't get that little boost that we were talking about, but they have the same rights to appeal. If a person makes a claim for veterans disability compensation and that claim is denied by the regional office then there are multiple options for appeal there is a higher level review there is the possibility of filing a supplemental claim or there's an appeal to the board of veterans appeals in washington and that process again gets subdivided you can have direct review you can have evidence submission, you can have a hearing, and if the board decides against you, there are further appeal rights to the United States Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims, and even to the court above that, the United States Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. And in very rare cases, and I can't underline very rare enough, the United States Supreme Court occasionally hears a veterans benefits case. There are literally fewer of those decisions than I have fingers, but it, there are at least opportunities to appeal these cases for multiple levels. How do you address the skepticism that some veterans have when it comes to, you know, the eligibility of non-combat related injuries for disability benefits? Well, basically, we just tell them that We've had considerable success in establishing entitlement to benefits for non-combat-related injuries. In fact, I would say that at least 80%, it's probably higher than that, I, I haven't done a count, but at least 80% of the cases that where we represent veterans and have been successful, those have involved non-combat injuries. Gotcha. And I guess as an extension of that, what advice would you give to a veteran who has an injury or condition that, you know, they, it started in service or is related to service but wasn't related to combat and they're on the fence about applying or on the fence about appealing a denial? Oh, I would encourage them to go forward. The bulk, easily the bulk of VA's compensation benefits are being paid for non-combat injuries. Now, don't misunderstand, we certainly want anyone with a combat-related injury to get the benefits that they deserve. Uh, no dispute about that. But if you look at the entire range of people who've served in the military, and you look at those folks who develop disabilities, either physical or mental, most of those are not from combat. I mean, keep in mind that relatively small numbers of 
people who have been in the service actually participated in combat, even during periods of significant combat, like World War II or uh, Vietnam or the problems in Iraq and Afghanistan, Kuwait. You know, most of the folks in the military are actually supporting people who are either in combat or prepared to go into combat. There's a very high proportion of people who are not in combat at any one given time in the military, even folks who are combat capable as opposed to being assigned to support services. So it's an ongoing issue that those folks should not hold back on making their claims because really a, a majority of the claims are non-combat related. And I guess just to get a little more specific too, what about injuries or illnesses? What have you sustained during periods of training? You know, for somebody who enlisted and they went into basic training and sustained some sort of injury there. Yeah, those folks are eligible. As long as you can show that the problem that occurred during basic training is the source of the current problem, let me give you an example from an early case, one of the first cases I was involved in. This gentleman had been shot while he was in high school. Uh, a friend accidentally discharged a firearm and the bullet was lodged in his spine, um, 22 bullet, relatively small, and the neurosurgeons at the time felt that the risk of trying to extract the bullet, which was not causing any terrible symptoms, were far greater than the limitations imposed by leaving the bullet in place. So this young man got injured, I think it is sophomore year in high school, had obviously a period of recovery, but after that, threw the hammer, played football, threw the discus, did strenuous sports, and uh, was admitted to the service with no problem. He told them about the bullet in the spine, but they looked him over and their doctor said, yep, he agreed with the neurosurgeon folks. It wasn't causing any problem. Go forward. He was in the service for a period of time and in basic training, the heavy level of physical activity caused the bullet in the spine to become symptomatic and they gave him a choice. They said, well, we can operate on your spine and take out the bullet, or we can invalid you out of the service. And having been told uh, repeatedly by neurosurgeons that it was not smart to operate on his spine and try to take out the bullet, he opted for being invalided out of the service. And this young man had a father who had been in the service, was in the ROTC program, wanted to make the military his career, and after being invalided out, developed this terrible depression, just basically couldn't function. And the VA, for whatever reasons, kept saying, well, you're just depressed, it has nothing to do with your military service. And we had several levels of appeal, including an appeal to the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims, before we finally uh, won that case, but we, we ultimately established that his depression 
was related to his being kicked out of the service because of this problem becoming symptomatic as a result of his basic training duties. And he's now getting service-connected benefits. But in answer to your question, I know that was kind of a long response, the short answer is any injury or illness that is developed during basic training is eligible for benefits. The one piece of that I want to make sure I stress is that folks who are uh, not actually in basic training but are just in the guard or reserves and uh, participating in training for that may not necessarily be eligible for the same scope of conditions that a person who is on active duty would be. There, there are some different rules for folks who are in the guard or reserves and are just being at training. All right. Well, we're just about out of time for today. Did you have any last bits of advice for any veterans who might be watching who, you know, were injured but it had nothing to do with combat? Sure. Please make sure you go forward, make your claim, appeal your claim if need be, and don't be put off by the fact that this is not combat-related. While people who have combat-related injuries and get special awards like the Silver Star, for example, get, again, a little legal bump, a little uh, greater eligibility, if you will, the fact that you have an injury or illness that is not combat-related should not prevent you from getting justice. Go ahead and file your claim. All right. Well, thanks very much for tuning in. This has been another episode of Victory Over VA. Uh, please be sure to subscribe and uh, tune in next week. Don't miss our next episode. Thanks for joining us this week on the Victory Over VA podcast. Make sure to visit our website, veteransbenefits.com slash podcast, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our free consultation to see how we can help you with your denied claim. Simply go to veteransbenefits.com and fill out the form. You fought for us. Now let us fight for you. And be sure to tune in next week for our next episode.